Well, good morning. I want to thank Daniel and the praise team for leading us in worship this morning. Thankful to see you here. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. We've been here a couple times, two or three times now. And we should finish up this text today, dealing with the qualifications of a man for pastoral office. Let me pray, then we'll read together and, and get into the text. Father, we come to you today, Lord, thankful for the grace that makes us sons and daughters. And thankful, God, for the grace that you give uh, to others among the body, your sons, God, to preach and proclaim the gospel. God, I'm thankful for the call that you've given me and for the opportunity to preach this word, but I am aware that I cannot do this without the help of the Spirit. I can stand, I can talk, but I cannot change hearts. I cannot give faith, God. I cannot call the dead to life. I cannot effectively uh, encourage the faint-hearted or uh, humble the proud. I cannot instruct the simple without your help, without your grace. God, I have prayed and, and asked for help in preparation, and I believe you've granted that. Now I pray and ask for help in delivery, and I believe that you will help. So God, I want to feed your sheep today. And I pray that those who do not feel a call to pastoral ministry, which is most of the people in this room, that they would not check out thinking that this text has nothing to do with them because every word of God is proven and true. And we do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, including a text that seems to be primarily pointed at those who want to preach the gospel. But I pray that we would recognize today as we unfold this text that there is a that we need to know what men uh, qualifications men ought to have and should have in order to call the pastoral ministry so that we don't call any to pastor among us that are not qualified or fit or, or truly called by you to do so. God, other churches uh, and perhaps our church in the past, I don't know, has been uh, touched in a bad way by men not fit for, for the office. And so I pray that you would guard us through your word and that you would help us to understand that there is a high standard and a a high expectation of men who would come and and pastor and preach the gospel. And God, that you would equip us who have been called to that to remain faithful and to remain qualified. Because God, though I'm qualified at one moment, if I sin grievously and turn aside, I am no longer qualified. And I, I pray that you would not let me walk in that kind of error or that kind of sin, that it would not have dominance over me. And I pray that you would give ears to the congregation to hear the truth and a heart to love the word and a desire to please you by enforcing these qualifications on every man who would stand to pastor this church. God, that our people would desire to, to hold us accountable to your word because that is what is good and best. That is what love looks like, and that's how love functions in the body. And so we we ask for your help to do that, God. Help to preach, help to understand, help to act it out, to live it faithfully. And we do all this not because we're worthy, not because we have earned a place at your throne to be heard by our piety, but because Jesus Christ came and lived and died and was raised to justify us and to make a way into your presence so that we might have not just some access, but bold access to your throne. It's a gracious throne, a powerful throne. 
and we can come as often as we have need to find help and grace for those things. And so, God, we praise you this morning and thank you for these truths. God, help us to walk in them for your glory, for our good. Amen. So this morning, again, we're going to continue our series on biblical leadership and particularly on pastoral leadership or pastoral character because technically biblical leadership could involve our deacons as well. And maybe by God's grace, we'll get to that at some point and, and kind of preach through some of those things. Because if you have read this passage and you're familiar with First Timothy, you know that following the qualifications for a pastor, uh, Paul lays out the qualifications for deacons as well. But today I want to focus particularly on pastoral character. Pastoral character is important not simply because we're evaluating Jeffrey and Donnie's fitness for pastoral ministry, but also because we live in a day when gifting is regarded more highly than character. But that's not the ethic of Scripture. So we live in a day when if somebody can stand up and speak well, if they seem to be fruitful in what they do, we, that's awesome. Look at look what God is doing. Praise the Lord and hallelujah. And there's a sense in which we ought to rejoice in that. But we also overlook a lot of disqualified people and we, we, it's part of the, the reason even that we put sports figures out, you know, newly converted sports figures. We stick them up in front of large audiences and we want to hear what they have to say about God when they may not even be ready to do that because we think gifting is important. We love what sparkles and shines. But that's not the emphasis of the Scripture. That's not what God says is important. Lots of well-spoken men are in hell. And lots of well-spoken men lead churches to destruction. Because being well-spoken is not the same as being qualified. And so we need to make sure that we put the emphasis where God puts the emphasis. And that's what we're going to look at and, and hopefully finish up today. If you've been here through these past sermons that I've preached, we've seen that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, that a pastor must be an example to the flock. A pastor must live above reproach, and I think that is a qualifying uh, characteristic, but I also think that's actually speaks of all these other things and all these other ways the pastor must live above reproach but we've noted that that isn't sinless perfection god isn't asking your pastor he's not asking me or andrew he's not asking of donnie or jeffrey if they uh, make it into pastoral ministry here he's not asking for perfection he supplies a perfect righteousness to us because we don't have it but he does require us to walk above reproach and to strive for holiness but he requires that of every member of this church as well. We're just to be examples in those things to you. And so far, what we've looked at is 11 of the 15 traits, I believe, if I've counted right, but I'm not good with numbers, that God requires pastors to possess. So with God's help, we're going to survey the rest of these characteristics and, and hopefully cast off some baggage that, that the Titus passage, which is a parallel to this, has brought into some people's minds and as they're thinking about what pastors ought to do and bring to the table. And, and there's been a question that's been raised as we compare Timothy and Titus and, and the, the especially particularly regarding pastor's children. So we'll look at that. We'll take a brief excursion there and, and, and look at that. But if you're taking notes, I didn't put an outline in the bulletin, but if you want to write these four main points down to flesh out uh, subpoints under, the first one is going to be Christ-like character. That'll be our, our main heading for the first point here, Christ-like character. The second one is going to be conscientious at home. Conscientious at home. Number three, conditioned by experience. 
And number four, complemented by outsiders. Those will be the main, the kind of the ebb and flow of, of, of how we structure this today. So listen with me as I read through the, the entire uh, seven verses here and get into the main, uh, main part of the text. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So under that first heading there, Christ-like character, uh, have been most of these qualifications that we've looked at, but today the only one that we're going to deal with under that heading is that last part of verse uh, 3, not a lover of money. Now, this does not mean that a pastor should labor for free. There have been movements in history where churches have felt like that that, that was the way it needed to be, that pastors ought to be just like Paul, and, and Paul didn't get any money from the church, and so neither should Brother So-and-so who's, who's leading the, the, everything here at our, at our church. I don't think that's biblical. I think it's biblical if the pastor says, I want to work for free, that, that you honor that and he works for free. But I don't think that's a recommendation or a requirement. In fact, there's places, and we'll touch on one here later, where it, it, the scripture seems clearly to teach and indicate that we ought to pay pastors. And we'll get to that in, in due turn. But here, what's being, uh, what's being prohibited is a love for money. And again, that doesn't mean it's, it's a free work or free labor or that a pastor cannot have nice things. An interpretation like that often reveals an attitude of stinginess among the membership. If, if the membership loves to live in nice homes, but wants the pastor to live in, shabby, uh, in a shabby home, or they like to drive nice cars, but wants the pastor to drive a shabby, broke-down jalopy, then typically that's because they love their money and they don't want to share their money. And I don't think that's a problem here. Some of the things that I'm going to say don't land necessarily on this congregation. We, we've talked about this past year, the generosity that this church has continued to exhibit even during COVID. And though we're not passing the plates and, and some of that is different, giving has been good. And so I'm not preaching because this is a deficiency that I, I see, but just simply to say, if I'm going to, to walk this text out, we have to recognize that, that people we know have this attitude. People that we've set in uh, around or set under have had this attitude. And what we need to guard as, as the people of God is to recognize that when we hear not a lover of money, if we're not careful, sin takes occasion with that verse and it causes our stinginess to kick in. Well, I'll help brother so-and-so not to be a lover of money because I won't give any. And, and we can be that honorary. We, we truly can. So uh, as I prayed earlier, I hope you understand this text isn't just simply for Donnie and Jeffrey or me and Andrew. Because we see here in this first point that it has an application that touches on your heart, that touches on, on your generosity as well. So the pastor should not be a lover of money, but neither should the members of the church. Okay, Jesus said this to everybody, no one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Later in 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Don't misquote it. It's not the root of all evil. That's how you hear it said. It's, that's incorrect. It's a root, a root of all kinds of evils. It's not the ultimate root of evil. And he goes on to say, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So commenting on this qualification, Alexander Strzok says this, he says, this prohibits a base mercenary interest. Base meaning like uh, sinful or, or uh, there's something wrong with it. It's not like the foundation that it's built on. It's a, it's a, a bad a mercenary interest. And a mercenary is someone who does things simply for money that uses Christian ministry and people for personal profit, end quote. So this eliminates many of the men you see on TBN. They're simply in it for the money. And they're not ashamed to even tell you that. Uh, they're, they're all about the Rolls Royce and the diamond rings and, and all this stuff and that, and, and, and that's absolutely antithetical to what Paul is telling Timothy right here. Okay, so there's a problem there. But they continue, these men continue because the love of money in the pew continues to empower false shepherds who use, them, uh, who use the people in the pew by holding that carrot out on the stick. Send me your seed faith. Send me that, that $20 donation or that $200 donation or $2,021 in 2021 and God will bless you. You hear that stuff all the time. They're appealing. It's like a lottery ticket. They're appealing to your love of money to help satisfy their love of money and that's why they're still on television because there's love of money in the pew and there's love of money in the pulpit in those cases. It's a shame because that's exactly opposite of what Paul says men who truly preach the gospel ought to do and how they ought to live, how they ought to operate. And so Paul exposes and unmasks the hypocrisy of, the, of many of the people on TBN just on that, that front alone. A true servant of God cannot condone or foster this kind of practice. There's another thing to, to observe here, though. Churches and church members must observe or, or be wary of another pitfall here. And it's, the, it's one of the Ten Commandments. So on one hand, we can, we can love money and we can, we can be tricked into you know, pursuing basically that Christian version of a lottery ticket. I'll send in my money and God's going to bless me and make me prosperous and my bank account's always going to be full. And It's like we haven't read Hebrews chapter 11 where some people walk around destitute without clothing or a place to live uh, and God says that they were people that the earth wasn't worthy of. We think that, that it's different in our day and age and that we ought to have all that money in the bank account. And so there's, there's one problem. There's another problem that we, that we can run into, and again, it's what I've said, this prohibition on stealing. So how do we get there? Well, this is stated, the, the prohibition against stealing is stated unambiguously in the Ten Commandments, and we've been opening with those, uh, so typically we're running through that, but you, you remember Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, that says, you shall not steal, okay? Well, we see this worked out in other statements of the law. Here's how it's more uh, readily applied in real life because I, I bet most of us didn't knock off a 7-Eleven this morning. We're probably not in danger of that kind of, of a breaking of that commandment, but there are other more subtle ways that we might be in danger of breaking this commandment. So Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13 says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Well, that's not armed robbery, I don't believe, because it goes on to say this, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. I think that's the application of the text. It's not, you shall not stick them up, give me your wallet. It's, you shall not withhold from someone what's due to them. 
And we are guilty of that often. And so that's the subtle way that based on the, the moral commandment, do not steal, the Bible gives us application of what it actually means by that. It does mean don't go knock off a bank or a 7-Eleven, but it also means don't withhold from brothers and sisters. Don't hold, withhold from workers what's due to them because that's a way that you would rob your neighbor and break the law of God. So I hope you can see the parallel there. Robbing one's neighbor is to withhold wages for services rendered. Or Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Well, this is picked up and interpreted for us by Paul later in this same book. In chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Let me just pause. I'm not going to flesh this out, but that doesn't mean let, them be, uh, let, let everybody shake their hand and smile more at them and tell them more than anybody else how blessed I am by your preaching, brother. Double honor isn't about flattery. It's actually this idea of honor has to do with payment. Part of it, in, in, and you see this with Jesus when he talks to the Pharisees, the, the, the traditions of men, and he says, the, the law says honor your father and mother, but you say, well, all I've got that I would give to help dad and mom in retirement, I've set that aside for God. So it's this the idea, this connection to helping to provide for mom and dad is to honor mom and dad in Jesus' mind. And he says, but you think you're real pious. I've dedicated all my money to the kingdom. I don't have anything to help mom and dad with in their retirement or in their old age. Well, so there's a connection there. And there's other places that we could go. But this idea of honor has to do with, with payment for, what, for work uh, rendered. He goes on to say, back to Paul here in, in uh, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and here's the application of the law, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul again reaches back into the Old Testament. The, the background, the foundation is the moral commandment, do not steal. And Paul takes that and Deuteronomy and he says, an application that we need to understand in the New Testament is, we need to be, we need to be willing to pay those who labor among us with preaching and teaching. Because, as Leviticus 19.13 says, that if you withhold payment from your brother, you're robbing him. So there's my biblical foundation that it's actually not pious to withhold payment from pastors. It's actually commanded when you actually dig into the text and, and see what it's saying. And it's based on a pitfall that we might fall into, well, you know, uh, of, of breaking the commandment not to, not to steal because we're withholding payment that's due. Now the point I'm making is this. These other points of the law regarding paying a worker are based on the moral requirement of the Eighth Commandment not to steal. So clearly in Scripture, pastoral work is seen as labor that deserves compensation. That's what Paul, that's how he applies it in 1 Timothy. So churches then should joyfully pay according to their ability. And I want you to hear that. According to their ability for the work their pastor does because unwillingness would violate the Eighth Commandment. Now, why do I say according to their ability? Because inability is not the same as unwillingness. Some churches are so strapped, and I've, pre I've preached to four people one Sunday morning years ago at a church. Do you think they could afford to pay a pastor? <laughs> of course they couldn't. And if they could, it would be enough to maybe pay for his gas to come back and forth every Sunday. I'm not saying that the Eighth Commandment, do not steal, requires them to give him a house and all of its furnishings. But it does require them, if they have a pastor, to do what they can to sort of offset or honor the work that he's doing and, and render some kind of payment. 
So that's the according to ability. So if, if Union Baptist Church comes to a point at some place where we're just not able, we're all just economically wrecked, and we can't afford to pay a single pastor here, we're truly unable, that's not a violation of the Eighth Commandment either, as long as we maintain a willingness to pay. You see the difference there? So unwillingness and unability are not the, are not the same thing. So it is not necessarily, to bring it back to the point here, it's not necessarily the love of money at work in a pastor who desires a livable wage for his work. Well, the next, next thing that we see is our second heading, conscientious at home, and this is out of verses 4 and 5. We see the pastor must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So this quality here comes with a rhetorical question as application of, of what Paul's point is. And the question is, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, the implied answer, the obvious answer that Paul's driving at is that he won't be able to care for God's church. If he can't do the lesser thing, which is care for a few people under his own roof, how will he be able to do the greater thing, which is care for multiple households under the, the, the roof of the church. You see, it's that greater to lesser uh, argument that Paul's making here. He obviously cannot function in that role to care for God's people on a large scale if he fails to care for God's people on a small scale. Too often, though, men in ministry have neglected their wives and their children in the name, in the name of Christian ministry itself. I've been that guy. And thank God he opened my eyes through my wife's pleadings and prayers and, and faithful, a faithful brother that stood and talked to me after church one time years ago and I came to realize that it was grossly negligent and imbalanced for me to put all my focus on those opportunities to preach when it was killing my wife and she was basically raising kids as a single mom because I was never available. She started to become bitter toward me and the ministry to some degree and that's not a slight on her. Shame on me for putting her in that position. It's glorious. It's good to be called to preach the gospel, but it's not ultimate in the sense that I get to neglect her or my kids or other God-given responsibilities to do that one thing. Well, that was the culture that I was brought up in, though. The church cultures that I was in is that if you could call it ministry, then it, it immediately came to the top. Ministry was equal to God. Well, that's baloney. God is God, and we serve Him first, and if He commands me to preach and to care for my family, I've got to find a way to do both without violating the other one. I don't get to say ministry is most important, and you just suck it up and go along with it and, and take all the hard knocks. Will there be hard knocks for a pastor's wife? Absolutely. For pastor's kids, certainly there will be. But it's sort of like I could stand up here and I could browbeat and try to be offensive to you, or I could just preach the gospel and let the gospel offend you. The offense is going to come, but I need to be wise about how that offense comes. Well, I need to be wise about how hard knocks come into my family. I don't want to be the cause of those because I'm unwise or unfaithful. It is grossly imbalanced and negligent and disobedient even to this text to put ministry above all other things to the neglect of wife and kids. And as I said a while ago, it actually is a violation of this text. Loving and serving well at home is one of the things that actually qualifies a man to pastor a church. So if he's, if he's 
doing an end run around serving at home because he thinks ministry is important. He's just demonstrated that he doesn't actually value ministry or the Word of God because the Word of God says, serve your home, man. Serve your wife. Serve your kids. Do that first. Do that well. And if you can pull that off, then maybe, maybe there's a call. I mean, that, there's, there's so many other things besides that, but that's a fundamental qualifying thing so that if men fail to serve their wives and their kids uh, as, the, as God calls them to, then they're not fit to pastor the church. And so that's another place where we just don't care anymore, where we elevate gift above qualification. Well, can he speak? Is he, is he charming? Is he witty? Is it, does he have three points and a, and a good hymn to sing at the end? You know, does he make me feel good about myself? And you don't even care if he's, not, if he's neglecting these wife and kids because sometimes we just make it all about the public performance. The public declaration, well, that's gift above qualification if we're not careful, and that's wrong. That's sinful on our part as church members if we allow that to happen. It's sinful on our part as men who would preach the gospel if we live that way. And so we must not live that way. A pastor must possess uh, these qualifications uh, in some measure. He must Serve well in his home. Must, as Paul says, and notice that, that Paul doesn't make that ambiguous at all. He must manage his home, his household well. And then he even tells us kind of what that looks like. It's with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So let's unpack some of this. But as we go, let me just speak to every man in the room. I want you to listen closely. I think there's an implied command for you to pastor your own home. I'm not, I'm not telling you that, that God's called you and commanded you to pastor a church, but I am telling you that based on this text, I see an implicit command for every man in here to pastor in your own home. Because it's from the body of, of men here that ought to be pastoring at home that God would raise up some to actually pastor in the church. The implication is, is that they're already doing it in the home. You see that? So it's, we don't know who God would call. You don't know if God would call you a month from now into pastoral ministry. So the implication is, is that you're already pastoring your home. That's on every man in here. Every young man who's not married yet, hoping one day to find that, that right woman and, and settle down. God's expectation of you is that you'll pastor your home. That's manhood. That's one of the things that manhood is and requires. And maybe you've not done that well. Maybe you're not doing that at all. That's something that you can repent of. And that's something that you can believe God to give you the grace to walk in obedience for. Because God does expect every man in this room to pastor his home. Whether it's one person in the home or ten people in the home or more, it doesn't matter. God expects the men in this room to pastor in their home. Shepherd the souls of your wife, your kids. Now, let me also add this, that you will give an account to God regarding your efforts and your faithfulness in that matter. One day God will call us all to account. And we'll not only give account for every idle word that we've spoken, but we'll give account for whether or not we considered this, this commandment from God to love our wives by serving them for the kingdom of God. So if you're biblically illiterate, I'm not here to, to, to bludgeon your conscience this morning, but that just doesn't cut it, man. You can't affect it. If I didn't know how to open up the text of Scripture and I tried to stand up here and preach, it would be a failure and you all should kick me out of here. But just as much, if you can't open up the Word in your home, and even in a simple way, then that's something that you also need to ask God's grace for. 
Because the standard doesn't change because of your ignorance. Your ignorance largely persists because of your disobedience and your unwillingness to just dig in and do the hard work and, and trust God to bless that. You don't make seeds grow in your garden, but you trust when you plant them they will. And just the same, you don't make the fruit of God's commandments happen. You just obey them and God causes the, the, the work to happen. So you need to, to do the work. You need to open the Bible. Crack it open, start to pray, lead your family. That's God's expectation of every man in this room, regardless of your gifting, regardless of your IQ level, regardless of whether you've done it in the past or how old you are at this moment. Hear me say that you will stand before God and he will want to know, did you care about that commandment? Did you work to fulfill that? Did you, did you tackle that with faith? Because the unfaithful part, the unbelieving part is to say, I don't know how, and then we pretend like that covers us from God's command. That's like the kid who plays hide and seek and they stick their head under the blanket and everything else is hanging out and they think they're not going to be found. <laughs> we don't cover ourselves that way before God. We don't say, well, I didn't know how. We say, you commanded, I don't know how, help me. Strengthen me, enable me, empower me. I won't lower the standard to try to make myself feel better about my failures. I'm going to trust a mighty God. I'm going to trust your ability to make me able even though I don't feel able to do it. That's the, that's the attitude and the response of faith. That's what God expects from every man in this room. So with God's help, step up and lead men. Only those who are faithful to pastor at home and who also, as Paul says at the beginning of this, aspires to the office of overseer, can legitimately be called by a local church to pastor there. So what does it mean to manage one's household well? It means what we've talked about, but it also entails providing for one's family spiritually, emotionally. Don't miss that, man. Your wife needs you there as an emotional support. And we need to provide financially. The pastor is a man who will lead his family in a way that they want to follow. That doesn't mean that you'll never make them angry. There'll never be some cross-dialogue between you and your wife where you've made her angry inadvertently or you've, you've, you've come across the will of your kid and, and you know, they'll never get angry about that. No, it just means that you overall lead in a way that people want to follow. Consider this. Our family is more likely than anyone else to support us and follow us in our pursuits in life, to overlook our faults and failures, to stick with us when others won't. So a man who cannot garner the support of his family has no business trying to lead the church. In the book Biblical Eldership, I'm going to draw from Strzok again, he says, quote, a well-managed family means that the children obey and submit to the father's leadership. The way in which that relationship is manifested is especially important. It's to be with all dignity. The father is not to be a spirit-crushing tyrant who gains submission by harsh punishment, end quote. Amen. That's well said. Absolutely, we're not to be a spirit-crushing tyrant. We're supposed to love our kids and lead them with dignity. We must acknowledge that the word manage here has two meanings. If we manage our household well, it has two meanings. One is to supervise, and the other one means to nurture. That's not simply the role of the mother in the home. There is a nurture that comes from, from the father as well. So a pastor must do both of these in the home. If he cannot, or if he will not, 
then he must not be called and appointed to pastoral work because he lacks one of the basic qualifications from God's word. So one last consideration here. And it's what I referenced earlier, that, that when you lay Titus's, uh, what Paul says in Titus down about pastors and what t- he says in Timothy about pastors, some people come to this segment here and they, they see uh, contradiction that I want to try to dispel and, and uh, put aside. There's often confusion regarding this pastoral qualification from Titus chapter 1, verses 6 and the first part of 7. I've included it for, to help make my point here. There Paul says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And I know that's a fragment. That's not a, complete, a total completed thought there. But the language that people cue in on is that his children are believers. Okay, And this has caused a lot of controversy in Christian circles over the years. So the question is this, does God require that the children of a pastor be saved or else he's not qualified to pastor? Think about that. I mean, you might want to say yes right off the bat, but think about the implications. I'll just be honest with you, not all my children make a profession of faith. So if that's your conviction, then I may not be qualified in your eyes. I don't think all of Andrew's children make a profession of faith either. So if we hold that, then, then we've already got some things that we need to talk about after the service today, perhaps. Okay, but there are people, there are churches, there are bodies of, of, of Christians that believe that, that closely, that tightly. They understand it in that way that, yes, they have to believe. Well, then another question is, is, well, what if one believes but not a second one? Is one believing child enough? Like, where do you draw that line? Because I, I have one that makes a profession of faith. Andrew has at least one that makes a profession of faith. So maybe whew, we made it. Well, it's not clear, okay? But I don't think, I'm going to hopefully set that whole thing aside. Number one, here's how I'm going to try to do that. We must stay focused on the central issue. The central issue is the father's conduct, not his kids primarily. They're a view into the father's conduct, but the, the scope, the focus is on the man and his qualification. But if we go down the road of, of this word believers means born again Christians, then we've shifted focus away from something he has any control over to something he has zero control over because salvation belongs to God. It's not of men to give. It's not even of fathers to give to their children. Okay, so why do I say that? Because the the scripture talks about if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, that's dealing with the man. And it's talking about his kids. And then it says there in verse 7, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So you notice that the comment about kids is just nestled into a context of, is the man qualified? The point isn't about the kids determinatively. They're a window, again, into the man's character. So it's not primarily about his kids. Therefore, making salvation or non-salvation of his kids the issue, I believe, distracts from the main point. But there's more. Number two here. Notice that the phrase, children are believers, is paralleled by the phrase, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This means that if we understand the term believers in the first part of that verse to be equivalent to being born again, then the phrase not open to debauchery or the charge of insubordination must be equivalent to being born again as well because the concepts are parallel. And I know this is getting a little bit technical here, but here's the point. 
This is problematic because being born again entails much more than simply not being a scandalous sinner. If we, may, if we understand, and I'll get to the word believer and what that word actually is in the Greek in just a second, but just parallel thinking. If believer and not being open to the charge of, of debauchery and insubordination are parallel, then if you just aren't open to the charge of insubordination and, and debauchery, that automatically means you're a Christian. If the first part of the verse means that you're a Christian. Because Paul has them as equals. They're, they're, they're balancing each other out in his argument. Well, we know that being a, a believer is more than I'm just not a scandalous sinner. Right? It's, it's, it's faith in Christ. It's belief in, in Him as your only hope of salvation. It's not just not being you know, just a mediocre run-of-the-mill sinner. It's more than that. It's more, salvation is not morality. But that's the American version of it. Salvation is, it produces morality, but it is not synonymous with morality. So that if we're moral people, we're all going to heaven. Hogwash. Moral people are splitting hell open every moment of every day. Because morality is not the same as salvation. And that's the problem I see with making believers in the first part of this verse synonymous with this idea of not open to debauchery or scandalous sin, as I'm calling it. Number three, the phrase is keeping his children submissive out of 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, and his children are believers in Titus 1, 6 are not identical. Not even in the Greek. In Titus, Paul uses the word pistos, whereas in 1 Timothy, he uses the word hupotage. These words are not even in the same semantic domain, and I had to throw that phrase out there because everybody's probably thinking, what's semantic domain? Just think of it as the neighborhood the word lives in. It's like there's a lot of words that surround it that are kind of culturally related, but they're not necessarily like brothers or sisters. It's the neighborhood that the word lives in, and the things that it could mean and sort of imply, that's a semantic, a semantic domain. So pistos and hupotage are not even closely equivalent ideas. So Paul's not trying to, to make a one-to-one -one comparison. So when we lay these texts down to each other, we just need to recognize that, he's, that, that these are not uh, the, the same kinds of words. The word hupotage means the act of subjecting or obedience and subjection. That's it. That's all it can mean. It, it's a very limited domain, a very limited range of meaning. Whereas pistos, on the other hand, has a wide range of meaning. We're used to the word because, and translated believers is fine, but we often just simply go straight to the punchline that believer means born again. Well, that's not entirely true. It can mean that, but we're not driven to that as the only conclusion because the word pistos has this wide range of meaning. It can mean trusty, faithful, reliable, easily persuaded, believing, but not even that's not even in connection with the gospel at this point. That's just believing, like a willingness to believe, like they're not a hard case, like they're, they're, they're willing to be taught and instructed and trust mom and dad, those kinds of things. Confiding, trusting, and then one other option is what it often does mean is to trust in God's promises or to rely on Christ for salvation. But that's only one end of what the word can mean. But none of these, not, there's no place where pistos means all of those things in one context. And we need to keep that in our minds. We need to keep that clear that just because a word has many things that it can mean doesn't mean that when we look it up, we pick the definition that suits what we want it to mean and we go with that. Or that we say it means all of these things every time that it's used because that's not good exegesis either. 
So then when we keep that in mind and we come to Paul who wrote Timothy and Paul who wrote Titus and over here he says they need to be uh, under subjection and obedient and over here it looks like he says they must trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Those are not the same things. So either Paul is contradicting Paul or we have to put that extreme and plausible definition for believing or pistos aside and say to harmonize Paul in Titus with Paul and Timothy, then we have to come back to one of these meanings that means that the pastor's kids are trustworthy. The pastor's kids are reliable kids. The pastor's kids are easily persuaded. They can be trusted in. So then they're not the scandalous sinner. That would, that would be more equivalent to they're not open to the charge of insubordination or debauchery. That doesn't make them born again. It makes them under the control of their, their father and their mother. They're not scandalously sinning. They're not ruining the church and burning it down with their bad behavior. But it doesn't require that they have faith in Christ in a saving way. And so we can set aside then that, that argument, that uh, reservation the word hupotage means the active subject. I already read that. And so uh, it does not mean that all of these uh, things are true of them at once, that, 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 uh, that they're believing in Christ and trustworthy. It just simply means that they can be trustworthy. So the wide range of meaning for pistos allows us to harmonize these texts. And we can move forward here. As we move on to verse 6, we see that pastor, that a pastor must be, thirdly, conditioned by experience. That is to say, as the text reads, he must not be a recent convert, or may, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it's true that all men are prone to pride. Every man, woman, and child is prone to pride. But Paul identifies here that recent converts are particularly susceptible to being puffed up into pride. So we ask the question then, well, what is it about a, a new convert that excludes them from consideration? How is it that they're more susceptible to pride than anybody else? And I think here John Calvin is helpful. John Calvin cites, quote, foolish confidence and impetuous fervor, end quote. That is to say, acting out of zeal without forethought as what disqualifies a newly converted person. A newly converted person hasn't been tested and tried. They haven't learned to, to uh, bring that zeal into order. Matthew Henry adds this, and I think this is helpful as well. He must not be a novice, not one newly brought to the Christian religion, or not one who is poorly instructed in it, who knows no more of religion than the surface of it. For such a one is apt to be lifted up with pride. He goes on to say, the more ignorant men are, the more proud they are. End quote. So spiritual maturity comes with experience and sanctification, and that takes time. And when we look into the Greek and what Paul actually says here, he hints at that by using a word for new convert that literally means newly planted. Well, we've got a lot of farmland around here, and some of us raise crops and some don't, but we all know an apple tree or a pear tree or a, you know, some kind of a fruit tree, but we also know that, that when you buy them from the nursery, if you buy them as a sapling, they're not producing fruit yet, right? Or even when you get some, like Jeff, he loves to do greenhouse stuff. He plants the seeds and the tomato plant starts to come up out of the ground, but there's a season of time before it ever produces even the flower, and that flower turns into uh, an actual tomato. That's the idea that Paul's getting at here. 
It's not to call the man's salvation into question. It's simply to say that a newly planted believer isn't a mature believer. They're, they're not bearing sufficient fruit. They haven't come to the ripeness of age and experience that they need to, and he doesn't give an age. He doesn't give a chronological time reference here, but simply a concept that a newly planted Christian does not produce the fruit necessary to shepherd the people of God, to mix metaphors. So there's a process of sanctification, a process of maturation, a process of growth that needs to take place. And so to put someone out there to pastor that has not made it through that cycle somewhat and is not bearing the fruit of maturity and sanctification would be to ruin that person. It would be unloving and unkind to him, to his family, to the church. And so we don't want to do that. We don't want to set people out there ahead of time. The point isn't to say that a pastor cannot be a young person. Or that he must already come with, with years of pastoral experience. That's not what Paul's saying. The point is simply this. He must have grown to the point of bearing fruit of spiritual maturity. That's what we're looking for. That's what God requires. So finally then, we see in verse 7 that a pastor must be complimented by outsiders. We see that in the, in the words, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And at first, this might sound weird if you just stop and think biblically. We're, we're told by Jesus in places uh, that you will be hated by all for my name's sake, and woe to you when all men speak well of you. So if we have those things running in the background of our mind of what a Christian experience is like, it might sound weird to come to Paul who says, well, wait a minute, your pastor needs to be uh, well thought of by outsiders. Well, hold on a second, What's, what gives here? We've seen Paul seemingly contradict Paul, now is Paul contradicting Jesus? And I would say, no, he's not. But how can Jesus and Paul, speaking by the same Holy Spirit, say something that seems to be contradictory? Well, let's just recognize at first that it only seems to be contradictory. Again, John Calvin is helpful here. He says this, quote, This appears to be very difficult that a religious man should have a witness of his integrity from unbelievers themselves who are furiously mad to tell lies against us. But the apostle means that so far as relates to external behavior, even unbelievers themselves shall be obligated to acknowledge him to be a good man. For although they groundlessly slander all the children of God, yet they cannot pronounce him to be a wicked man. I think that's helpful. The point isn't that the world loves your pastor, that if you, if you know the right guy because he could walk down in the ghetto and nobody will mug him, they all think he's awesome, they all think he's cool. No, the point is, is that he lives in such a way that even though they'll slander him any other way they can, and they don't respect the gospel that he preaches, they can't have a charge that sticks against his character. And that goes back to the very beginning when Paul says he's sort of come full circle because he says that he must be above reproach. And the point is, is that he's above reproach not just in your eyes, but there's nothing to reproach him with in the world's eyes either. Nothing that'll stick, nothing that matters. No mud that'll truly uh, soil his, his righteousness because he's not a sinful man in the church, in the home, or in public. So then it's important to hear from neighbors Bosses, co-workers, classmates, professors, community members, on and on and on whenever we're thinking about bringing somebody in to uh, pastor uh, among us. Too often churches don't give this proper consideration. But we need to get input from non-church members. 
As the face of the church and as an ambassador of Christ, a pastor must have a good reputation within the community that he lives in. So as we close, I want us to consider then, what is our proper response? If this is about men's qualifications to pastor, what part do we play? And I sort of led with that. And if you remember the last time, I said I had seven verbs that, that I had turned into application. So action words, things to do. And we made it through the first three, and I'm not going to go back through those. I'm just going to finish with the, and make application with these f- four remaining verbs. What do we do as the church? What's your part to play as we consider Donnie and Jeffrey for pastoral ministry? Or down the road, any other man for pastoral ministry? Well, we need to evaluate them for ourselves. More specifically, you need to evaluate them for yourself. Because God's commanded you to be a part of the process of evaluation, not me and Andrew alone. Or not me and Andrew and the deacons. Or not me and Andrew and every other spiritual member, but I'm just feeling kind of lazy today. This is an expectation that God has placed on you as a member. So when we say we've, we've covenanted to walk with this church, this is part of what it means. That we will, we will evaluate men who, who seek the office of pastor for ourselves. Don't assume that they've already been evaluated by other churches. One, because lots of other churches don't do what's biblical. Let's just own that. Just be real for a minute. I've been in churches where, and I hate this practice, you, get, you put the search committee together to get all these resumes of people you don't know, and you, you listen to some online, or you go listen to them as a committee. They sound like they can speak intelligibly, so you have them come and preach one time, and everybody votes right after the service. Wow. That doesn't sound anything like the process Paul lays out here in First Timothy. I just don't see wisdom in that. It's, it's fast, it's easy, but how do you know anything? How does the church membership that's called to vote on them know anything about what others think about them or their character, their integrity levels? All you know is if they put words together, and I, I botched some of mine here today, so if we were going to vote on me after a sermon today, maybe I wouldn't get voted in if that's the criteria. But that's not it. We're to evaluate them. We're not to assume that they've already been evaluated and maybe they have been. Let's just assume the church they pastored at was spot on and did it right. But men are changeable creatures. He may have been evaluated and been faithful 20 years ago, but has he slid into sin? Unrepented sin, like bad, evil, disqualifying sin. He may not be qualified today. We need to know. So evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. Again, we're accountable to God to ensure that the men we call possess now the required qualifications. Paul tells Timothy later in this same, same letter, chapter 5, verse 22, do not be hasty, and it's specifically about making pastors. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. So there's a sense in which, as a church, we're guilty for putting men in the role of pastor who aren't fit for the office because we were lazy or or ignorant about God's expectations and the qualifications that men ought to possess. Do not be hasty in laying on hands. Don't do it quickly, because if you do, you're taking part in their sins, is the implication. So failure to properly vet pastoral candidates before calling them into service violates God's word. The second verb here for us today, remember. What? Remember what? Remember that we are primarily evaluating qualification and not giftedness. I want to stress it again. 
This is important. Again, too much emphasis is placed on gifts and not on qualification, and it has ruined churches and lives. Many times, zeal for giftedness is the cause of abusive, unqualified wolves that devour churches and church members, and it brings reproach on the cause of Christ in the name of Christ. So remember what we're evaluating. Qualification, not giftedness. Thirdly, fast. I'm not talking about speed. I'm talking about the practice of putting off food and drink. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's not a one-to-one comparison because they weren't being sent off as pastors, but it's, I think, a, a lesson for us as God's people who would discern God's will. Notice that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and it was out of that context that God identified men who He wanted to use in the service of the kingdom. And then even having been told by the Spirit, these are the guys I want, they fasted some more. I'm not going to unpack all of that, but they fasted and prayed even after the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So then one of the things that we ought to be doing as God's people is fasting and praying about this process of, of calling Donnie and Jeffrey as pastors. And finally, fourthly, pray that God will give Union Baptist Church wisdom to make this decision and to bring any hidden or disqualifying sin in Donnie or Jeffrey or myself or Andrew to light so that you are a part of what protects this church. And then I hope and pray that we would restore that brother if we find sin to be uh, a disqualifying sin to be there. So we want to evaluate We want to remember, we want to fast, and we want to pray. And let's do that now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power, for its clarity. God, we thank you for its application. We're certain of the power of your word. We're certain, God, of its ability. What we're uncertain of is our ability. And so, God, as I led with prayer, I want to end with prayer, that you would help us to listen, to learn, to apply these things in a Christ-honoring way that you would do the work in our hearts, God, having heard the word. May it be like those stone jars that were filled with water. Turn it to wine. Cause it to come alive. God, convert this knowledge into uh, the impetus, the, 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 the zeal, God, and, and the motivation for us to live out the things that you've commanded us to do. And God, where we find ourselves uh, fearful that we don't understand what we ought to do, what part we ought to play, or or, or where to go next, or how to, to thoroughly implement these things, may we not cower in fear and go bury this in the dirt. May we pray. May we seek your face. May we believe and act in faith and, and understand you've said if you lack wisdom, pray and ask God who will give generously. So we have no cause for fear. We have no cause for, for dismay or, or self-doubt because we're coming to the one who makes men able. If it were up to us, we would say we're not sufficient as, as ministers of the gospel. We're sufficient as a church to do these things. But Christ makes us able. And so, God, we want to, to walk in that. And we want to be able. And we want to be empowered by your Spirit to obey you and to trust you, to follow you, and to call only and keep only those men in pastoral ministry that are qualified by your standard. God, we love you. We love your word. We love your sheep. And we love the fact that that you have called and qualified men for this work. 
Help us to take that seriously today and every other day. And God, we would even pray that other churches would get a vision for this as well, that you would bring health and strength to the body of Christ by reviving and renewing within local congregations a zeal for qualification over gifting. And we ask it, God, to your glory, to our good and preservation. Amen.